So today is the last message in this series, Learning to Dance. Uh, and it's been a really good series based off of all the comments uh, that I've gotten from you uh, during the weeks in between. I'm grateful the Lord's been able to use it. Uh, week one uh, was the problem of communication. Week two, the problem of complexity. Week three, the problem of pressure. Week four, the problem of warfare. And now we come to week five. As I said last week, would give us some helpful ways to counter some of that stuff we covered. So let's pray this morning. We'll give the time to the Lord and seek you. Lord, we're at your mercy this morning. We think we can do great stuff, and the reality is you do great stuff. And we need you this morning to speak. We need you this morning to be with us. We ask for your manifest presence among us. We ask that your spirit would quicken ideas in our mind and open our eyes, Lord. Uh, your word says many times we're blind, or at best sometimes we see through a glass darkly. Uh, we only see if you give us the ability to see. So we recognize that when we come to Scripture, and we give that to you. Great hope this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. This morning will be a beginning, kind of like scratching an itch. Okay, so if you're wondering, uh, are we going to go into depth in it? No. Will I have all the answers for you? No. It'll just get the conversation started, but uh, we'll pursue stuff later in the year, and it will help wrap it up. So, if you've ever learned to dance, any kind of fancy dancing, uh, it is difficult. You've got to practice the steps, right, till they, you kind of get it down. But there's a point where you no longer mechanically do the movements, right? There's a point where it's, you start to get it. It starts, it starts to flow. And you become like one, and it becomes incredibly graceful. Uh, ice skating at the Winter Olympics, which is just starting up now, is a... a, a beautiful illustration of what I'm talking about. You just watch and it looks effortless, but it is anything but effortless, right? It took incredible practice. Uh, the same is true for marriage. It takes, uh, it takes time to create a flow. It takes time to gain rhythm. It takes practice. You become good at what you practice, First John I'm going to go through several diagrams to help set up the dialogue. And I'm going to go through these like a fire hydrant, so I apologize. But we're going to be short on time. So I'm just going to go through them, not do a lot of explaining. But let's start with some foundation pieces. You have a person, we just had two baptisms. What were we talking about this morning? Well, when a person comes to salvation, that means they've come to a place where they recognize that they have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, that's a lot of fancy lingo. What does that mean? All right, if you had a throne up here, and this was the throne of your life, right? Think of a golden throne, maybe some lions at the end, royal scepter. And you think of that throne, the question this morning would be, who's sitting on the throne? You or Jesus? Okay? Most of the time, we want Jesus over on the side to be our advisor as we sit on the throne. That's what you heard from both Tyler and Lindsay. Okay? They suddenly came to the realization they made great Tylers and great Lindsays. They made a lousy Jesus. And the reason was they were doing something they were never intended to do. They were trying to be God, trying to be on the throne. And what you realize in salvation is you have to get off that and let Jesus on that throne and you have to kneel at the throne, not the other way around. That's what it means to be saved. You come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, when that happens, two very important things happen. First one is called justification. Justification is you are in Christ. In other words, 
Uh, look at the circles up here, you'll see. You see you in the center, and then you see Christ wrapped around. You are in Christ. That means when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees your imperfections. He no longer sees all the stuff that you beat yourself up for all the time. What does he see now? He sees the sun. Okay? And it is just as if, in other words, justification, just as if you were Christ. In other words, Jesus now covers you. That's what it means that the cross, his shed blood, is his propitiation over us, and our sins can be forgiven. Wonderful news. That's called good news. It's called the gospel. I don't know about you, but I never want to have to pay for my sin. I'll never get out. I know. All right? So it's a wonderful deal. But the second thing that happens, uh, by the way, uh, it's found every, we are in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is already accounted to us. But the second thing that happens is what's called sanctification. That's a little messier process because that's the process where we cooperate with God through the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus. And if you look at these circles, you'll notice that initially the Holy Spirit gets a foothold, gets an entrance place, a place where you ask him in. And once he gets in, he begins to agitate. And as you move up, more and more ground is yielded to the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, you become more and more like Christ. Now, does anybody ever get there perfectly? No. All right? But the goal is to become spiritually mature, that you would actually become like Christ in heart, in mind, in thought, in action. Uh, It's called the Christ-like life. Right? So those two processes kick in. Let's talk about sanctification a little bit. How does that actually work? Well, here's how it works. If you take a continuum, and there's one up on the screen for you, and just on side, if you go on each side, on one side you're going to have love, and then, uh, what do we got up there? Oh, obey, okay. On the other side, disobey. All right? And then on the second side, click again, Susan, we got light. All right? And the other opposite of that is darkness. And then you have life. And the opposite of that is death, all right? And so these are big themes. You've got, um, Apostle uh, John in his gospel lays these out really well. So again, when, that, when the Holy Spirit comes in, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to see things that we don't see. When he comes in, he draws a line, all right? And the line, the Holy Spirit is not a line, all right? The Holy Spirit is a person, but he does draw a line. And when he draws that line, what he says is that, okay, everything underneath the line, you can no longer do. Don't worry about the stuff above the line just yet. We'll get to that. We'll grow in relationship together. We'll move there. But for right now, everything under the line is uh, not good. And so if I jump across that line, all right, if I jump across that line, that's called sin. Okay? And if I... There we go. Sin. What do I have to do to get right? To get right, you've heard that word used this morning. You heard Lindsay and Tyler both talk about hardness of heart and repentance. In repentance, I have to agree with God where the line is, and I have to repent and come back on the other side of the line. It's that simple. All right? Now, later on, God backs up the line. You can see the dotted line there. And usually, he's really smart. He'll back it over one or two things that our flesh, our sin nature, still wants to hang on to. Anybody ever been there? Right. And when he does that, 
If we jump across that line and grab it, that's called sin again. Right? I'm missing the mark. I'm on the wrong side of the line. What do I have to do to get right? I have to repent. Same, same process all the way through. Very similar to marriage. Marriage is a surrender move. Marriage is you agree to submit to each other. That's a one-time act. We call it a wedding. Most of us know what that's like, right? Followed by a lifetime process. Most of us get the one-time act down really well. It's the process that wipes us out. Right? Same thing in the Christian life. It's the process that entangles us because God is pushing the line farther and farther uh, on that side. And the other thing you realize is when he moves the line, you cannot take that thing that he drew the line over, stick it in your back pocket, sashay across the line and go, hey, Jesus, being you, we're good, right? Peace. No, it doesn't work that way. All right? He drew that line for a reason. He wanted you to let go of that. And so as he keeps moving, what you realize is if you stay on the right side of the line with the Holy Spirit, you have something that's really, really important. It's a biblical word. It's called assurance. Assurance is a beautiful word. It means you, you have this confidence from God that you're okay with him. You know in your spirit that you're right with him. Uh, if you don't stay on that side of the line, you end up uh, having... Click the next one there, Susan. There we go. Okay. Insecure. Right? Why? Because you know you're hanging on to something that the Holy Spirit told you not to hang on to. Whether it's a thing or a word or a thought or a habit or an action, it really doesn't matter. But you just become insecure because you've chosen that thing over Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit then gets into the agitation mode of having a conversation with you about can we move back to the other side of the line. And you can see this as we keep moving down the list. On the right side of the line, you have clarity. You can see you, God gives you clarity. If, if you stay on the other side of the line, you're in the murky gray and everything's muddy. And you can't see things clearly and you can't discern things very clearly. It's a mess. The next one on the other side of the line, you have singleness of heart. You are tied to Jesus. You are committed. You're, you're walking with them. If you don't, the Bible says you become, in the book of James, double-minded. And a double-minded person is unstable in everything that they do, right? And so you can see how this helps us understand if we're suddenly in a place where we're insecure, nervous, anxious, and we're, we're clouded up, one of the things to do is pray and say, God, did I hang on to something I wasn't supposed to hang on to? If I grabbed something I wasn't supposed to grab, what was it? What do I need to let go of? And what do I need to do to move back on the line and be back in right relationship with you? That makes sense, doesn't it? That's how our relationships work. God created relationships, so that makes a lot of sense that way. All right, so in this diagram then, uh, is there another word there, Susan? There we go, holiness. God is interested in us being holy. We are interested in us being happy, right? If you think of the Constitution of the United States, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It should have been life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Do you think our country would be a little different today if that would have been in there? All right. If I'm not after holiness, I get on the other side and I get wrapped up in what the Bible calls the carnal mind, the carnal appetite. I'm feeding 
the things that I want, but they are not the things that Jesus wants. And so this is helpful. Uh, Everybody here has learned to love and hate this diagram all at the same time. But it's really important because when we talk about it, it helps us understand what the sanctification process looks like. Now, there's one more step with this, all right? So uh, God is always moving the target. He's, see those targets on the other side? He always wants to move it towards more holiness, towards more things that uh, he wants to engage with us on. And he'll push that all the way to the line. And I've jokingly said before, we get there, you know, and we, and we go, yeah, I did it. All right, awesome. Then God goes, great, next level. What? Next what? Next level. Well, how many levels are there? That's not your business. Just follow me. We'll keep going. Right? And so this is the process that we're talking about. Now, in that process, go to the next diagram then there, Susan. Thank you. Okay? There's not just one area. On this diagram, I think there's about eight. Okay? And you can see that the Holy Spirit has made certain advances in certain areas farther than in other areas. In other words... For some of us, what's easy for us is very hard for others, and what's very easy for others is very hard for us. And so all of our walks with the Lord have this engagement factor of where am I allowing the Holy Spirit to have room? And in some of them, uh, you can see up there, uh, like for example, in faithfulness, great progress was made very quickly. But you can see in some of the other ones, it's a battle, it's a struggle, it's it's not gone as easily. Now, over a period of time, that expands. You, you walk with the Lord, and you can see that some of these areas start to push out. They get farther. And that's what the Bible calls spiritual maturity, is you're starting to let the Holy Spirit push out that way. Now, here's the danger. All of us have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. Go to the next one, Susan. Thank you. Okay. And in this case, uh, this person's really good at faithfulness. All right, we'll, we'll use faithfulness. That's their strong card. That is what they're good at. It comes to them naturally. They lock right in. All right? But the other areas aren't so easy. And what you realize is that if you operate this way, uh, I call this the tendency to play the strong hand. Right? In other words, what are you just naturally good at that you... It's your fallback. It's what you go back to. It's what you, know, what you learn. Uh, there's nothing wrong with this, but you can see from the other eight areas that part of the equation, they are part of the equation, and they add to the complexity of the situation. These have to be developed as well to complement your strength. Okay? So for example, I, I'm a relational person. I like people. I like hanging out with people, and I'm really good at it. What's my weakness? Administration. Okay? I'm not very good at administrating. So what does God do? He makes me collect administrators. A lot of you have felt very sorry for me over the years in my administrative gifts and have joined me to help me out. All right? It's called Margaret, Diana, Shannon. Right? You go just down through the list. Okay? That's how God has balanced that out. And that's often, hello, listen, that's often what marriage is. Right? Strengths and weaknesses combine to be better together than you could be apart. That's the beauty and the beauty of marriage. Now, let's look at Scripture that we walked through last week and blend this idea to it. In Ephesians 4, it says this, Until we all attain the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God. What's the phrase here? To a mature manhood. In other words, to a mature person, a spiritual person. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's the daunting part. Okay? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal, the target. So that we may no longer be what? Children. Right? That we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay? Any of us run into deceitful schemes over the last 24 months? Right? Lots of stuff there. Notice the theme of unity. Notice the theme of maturity. And that the measuring mark is not you or the people around you. This is where we make the mistake. Who's the measuring stick? Jesus is. You measure him. By the way, really quick, it's not in here this morning. If you want to know how to do that practically, go to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. In there, that's the love is patient, love is kind one. Okay, Put Jesus' name in that list and read that list with Jesus' name in it. And then take your name and put your name in the list and you'll quickly see the difference. And you'll see the gaps. And you'll quickly see which parts you have to grow in learning. It's a really fun and idea to do. All right. Ephesians 4, uh, 14 and 15, or 15 and 16. Rather than speaking the truth in love. Very important phrase. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, into Jesus, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, Paul is talking here about a church. That's how a church does it. But that also is true for marriage and for a family, that it gets built up and built in Christ, and it's to be built up in love. Notice we are to grow up in him, that each each part has to work properly. Again, think coordination, think synchronization, think flow. This is true of dancing, it is true of the church, the body of Christ, and it's true for marriage. We are required to grow up into maturity. Look at that phrase again, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be what? Children. Maturity takes time. It also takes focus. Uh, Let me give you three areas that need to be developed. Uh, three areas of maturity. First one is intellectual maturity. Uh, we, we're familiar with this. Intellectual intelligence has long been highly prized by mankind, and rightfully so. Uh, to develop a sharp, quick mind is highly advantageous in any line of work or endeavor. To be well-read is to be well-informed. Most of us develop this area because we have to. Who has not heard the phrase, are you done with your homework? Right? What is that? That's developing intellectual proneness. This is true for us as Christians as well. To read the Word and know the Word is an important theme and goal. Who has not heard that we should read the Bible? Right? Out in front center advertisement today. Second one is spiritual maturity. This one is also important uh, to many people in the culture, but especially Christians. Christians highly prize this one. Uh, The goal of much of what we do as Christians is to develop this. If you think about it, pastoring, counseling, mentoring, Christian leadership are all dependent on this. 
Never in the history of the world has there been such a proliferation and abundance of material available with this in mind. And when I think about when I first started in ministry, 1979, and I think to today, what was available in 79 and what's available today, it's mind-boggling. Okay? We even have things now that I don't know how to do. Okay? Like internet and Instagram and things that you can look up and like, it's crazy. It's absolutely wonderful and I'm glad you guys all like it because I don't. All right? I'm still in books. But there's a danger here. And the danger is this. This can merely be a development. Uh, one of the things we can fall into is a danger of head knowledge. Where it becomes something we know about, not someone who we know. And while my head may be doing fine, it may never connect to my heart. And if you listen to their story this morning, that was a lot of the process is that, you know what, I knew up here, I just didn't know down here, right? It's the third one that I want to focus on today when it comes to marriage, right? There's a third category I think that's really, really important. And I want to call it emotional maturity, there's a new phrase running around in intellectual circles and you see it on the internet used all the time and the term is emotional intelligence. Have you heard that? Right? It's, it, they fling it out there like emotional intelligence. In essence, it's a recognition that being smart, intelligent, and learned is not enough. That there's another component, emotional awareness. Now, all of us know people who can spot off tons of scripture and yet when it comes to their personal relationships, they are really in bad shape. Right? They're a wreck. They lack emotional maturity. As I said earlier, often spiritual maturity, now that should be what we're talking about and that's often historically what it's meant, but spiritual maturity has gotten relegated or equated to uh, or weighted towards, maybe that's a better way to put it, weighted towards the knowledge side of the equation. So that if I've read my Bible, if I've done studies, if I can quote scripture, therefore I'm spiritually mature and I don't have to worry about my behavior or my attitudes or my language or that kind of stuff. As I said, often spiritual maturity has been weighted towards that side. That does not always equate to being emotionally intelligent. Also, emotional intelligence is not the same as being clever or quick or shrewd. We're not talking about somebody who can dance around other people. What we're talking about is somebody who's emotionally intelligent spiritually, looks at the things and can weigh it and talk with the Lord and assess it and respond not just intellectually right, not just spiritually, but also emotionally right. You have to hook those three together. <clears throat> All of us who are married understand this. How many times have you had the situation figured out and you blew it because your response was attached to a wrong or immature emotional response? Right? And then your, your marriage partner caught you at it. Well, look at the way you're responding. Isn't that joyous? <laughs> right? And you're like, ugh. Just, what's wrong? They're not matched up. In other words, one is not uh, developed. I want to suggest this this morning. Jesus was incredibly emotionally intelligent. You cannot read the Gospels and not come away with that impression. He just knew, and he handled it. 
And his responses were not just genius, but they were emotionally genius. He knew how to capture the moment. Uh, the Apostle John, as I mentioned earlier, has been perceived to be deeply emotionally intelligent. Many people gravitate towards the Gospel of John because there's this sense that John had an emotional awareness with Jesus that the other disciples lacked. And, and you just come away, you read that, number one, you knew that John knew who Jesus was. And it was just linked up. They were relationally tied. The Apostle Paul was incredibly emotionally intelligent. You cannot read the book of Acts and not come away with that assessment. In the heat of the moment, outgunned, outmanned, set up, trapped in numerous situations, he just handles it in ways that are incredible. I would point you to the, the scene in the Philippian jail where they have gotten the living snot beat out of them and at midnight they're singing hymns. That is an emotionally intelligent person. Paul and Silas together. And just read the book of Acts with that in mind and, and you can see that. Um, there's a number of stories in Scripture, by the way, that show you people who aren't emotionally intelligent. Okay? And so... Uh, but <clears throat> let me give you an example of emotional intelligence. And it doesn't come from a source that you think. It comes from a pagan. All right? If you, in Scripture, there's a story where Jesus is getting hotly pressed in Israel to the point where the Pharisees are trying to kill him. So he takes a break. He, he jumps out of the borders of Israel, one of the few times that he actually did it, to just get a breather, to get away. They go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and there was a Canaanite woman there who came out crying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And the story says that he did not answer her a word. Right? Didn't say anything. Now, if you're that woman, this is a chance to throw a fit. This is a chance to rant and rave. This is a chance of you call yourself the Messiah, and you sit there and say nothing? What good are you? You Jews are never good for anything. I knew it, but she doesn't do that. She keeps coming, and she keeps, to the point where his disciples said, hey, could you get her out of here? She's driving us crazy. She will not let up. Send her away, for she's crying out after us. You can tell they aren't on top of the situation. What are they thinking? We're tired. We've just walked. We've been beaten up by... Get this lady out of here. They are not thinking about the bigger picture. And so <clears throat> this woman comes and um, says, Jesus says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, you don't fit. You don't get any because you're not that. But she came, and here's the key phrase. What is it she said? She knelt before him. When we talk about this lordship thing, she knew. What was the appropriate gesture for a king? You kneel. Many of us have to learn that. Many times we're kneeling on the outside but standing up on the inside. God would like us to get it down that we're kneeling both. Right? But she comes and kneeling and says, I was only sent. So she comes and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow! Now you're sitting there going, well, that's not a big deal. I'm going, well, when's the last time somebody called you a dog? Right? 
In our language, it would be, hey, barface. You know, that kind of stuff. And when that happens, how do we usually react? Oh, thank you for the compliment. That's so sweet of you. No. What do we do? We get riled up. We get hostile. We get, you don't see this. What does this woman do? She does something absolutely brilliant. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Wow, that is emotionally intelligent. And what does Jesus say? Then Jesus answered her, O woman, O great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I want to meet this gal in heaven. How did you come up with that response? How did you not get offended? And one of the reasons she didn't get offended is her love for her daughter overweighed everything else. Love for her daughter outweighed everything else. So how do we become emotionally intelligent? Well, you're not going to like this answer. Here's the answer. The answer is through suffering, difficulty, and challenge. Oh, doesn't that make you happy? And it's a double-edged sword. It's a dangerous sword because it cuts two ways. If you lean in to it, it becomes emotional intelligence. If you don't, it becomes resentment and bitterness. So they're both right there. And it's, it's, it's right there. And I think you guys have been around long enough, you know how that works. You tip one way or the other, and it reaps one side or the other. That, that makes it scary. In marriage, as we pointed out, It either becomes what we've talked about is a spirit of contempt, which is what the devil wants to create in a marriage, or it becomes a deeper spirit of love. It either becomes a spirit of contempt or it becomes uh, a spirit of love. What's the difference? Well, it's how you handle the pressure that will come your way in the process of being married. So what are some healthy steps that can be taken to achieve emotional talents and have emotional intelligence, excuse me, and have it balanced with intellectual and spiritual intelligence. Here's some things. <clears throat> Quickly, steps towards emotional intelligence. This is nothing new. You've heard this before. Number one, learning to trust God. Learning to trust God is the first step in becoming emotionally intelligent. Because as you trust, you become like the people you trust. That means read God's word, that means learn to pray, that means seek out godly advice, and that means be obedient. All the things we talked about earlier this morning. Number two, understand your past and its impact on you. I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that a lot of people get like 45, 50, and all of a sudden they go into counseling. Because for the first time, they sat back and looked at their family and said, you know, I grew up, I thought my family was normal, it was good, and I, I got to 50, not so much. Holy cow, I'm a mess. i got to unpack some of this stuff. <clears throat> That's one of the best things you could do. God brought you to that point for that moment, and it doesn't hurt to unpack it. Number three, learning to control your temper. Learn to understand it. I have said many times that the number one mismanaged thing in Christian homes is anger. And people failing to understand what's making them angry and to sit back and figure a better path through. Children, uh, two or three-year-old level, throw temper tantrums. Do adults ever throw temper tantrums? Yes, we do. And it's embarrassing, it's difficult, and it's damaging on our kids. That doesn't mean you should never fight, but you need to learn to fight in a godly way. That takes emotional intelligence, and you've got to learn that. 
<clears throat> Number four, developing the ability to see past the immediate situation and see the big picture. You've heard this before. Say, just stop, breathe. Right? Just, just stop, breathe. <sighs> okay, I'm better. No, I'm not. Okay, breathe again. Okay, I'm better. Right? <clears throat> Some of it is being able to step back and see the bigger picture and ask God, okay, how does that fit into that now? That, that takes wisdom. Number five, not making major decisions or life choices when you are emotionally ratcheted up. Right? This is when men curse. This is when we make vows. And this is when we say things we shouldn't say. <clears throat> Stop. Let it blow over. Let it cool down for a bit. Walk away. Let me, give me a chance to pray. Come back at it later and re-engage so that you're, you're cooled down. It's hard to make intelligent decisions, whether they're intellectual or emotional, when you are boiling over. You've got to get it to cool down to be able to see it. Number six, flex and roll. If you get rigid, you break. You've never heard that from me? <clears throat> right? What does that mean? In World War II, they had the old parachutes. And if you watch the movies, they came down, and you watch all the movies, they hit the ground, and what do they do? They flex at the hip and the knees, and they roll. Why? Because that's how you absorb the shock of hitting the ground so you didn't break an ankle, break a, a shin, or break a thigh bone or a hip. And so you flex and roll, and that got you ready so that you could fight another battle. If you get rigid, you tend to break. <clears throat> you ever lock down? Boom! Okay? Just so easy to get blown up when you lock up. And so stay flexible. Number seven, in, in connection with... Um, Anger, and number three, number seven, learn to control your tongue. There are some things that you do not need to say. There are some things you do not need to say. Or there are some things you need to say, but you need to say them a different way. Have you ever gone back to your room or the garage or wherever and said, okay, this is what I want to say. Now, God, what's the right way to say that? That's emotional intelligence, okay? It's taking the bigger picture and your spouse and the Lord in a consideration and mapping your responses accordingly. And then number eight. This might not sound uh, as critical as the other ones, but develop great friendships. You know why? Because bad company corrupts good morals and great friends help you be great. You ever been around your friends? You're sitting in the lobby. You ever walked in church in the lobby and you're talking to someone and they say something you go, that's brilliant. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Like, and you take it home and you're like, that's what great friends do. Great friends rub off on each other and you help each other become who you are. All right, so like I said, just starting, there's the list. You take that list to God. You talk to him about it. We'll have more dialogue later. We're out of time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a great morning. What a great morning. Thank you so much. Uh, Pray your protection. We know how warfare works. We pray your protection over Tyler and Lindsay, their family. Thank you for this morning and their confession of repentance and turning to you and the difference that that has made. Lord, as we talk about being emotionally intelligent, we know we aren't, but help us become there. Lord, there's something about a group of people that seek that that is incredibly attractive to people who don't know you. Help us become that on a deep level. Help us to become like you. What a great privilege. We ask this in your name. Amen.